Well, good evening. Of course, it's been evening since three. <laughs> turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the first nine verses tonight. Thank you, Adam, musicians, Regen, and Joyful Noise Choir. Let's give them another hand. Yeah. Yeah. Music catechizes people. Uh, we have music that catechizes our young people playing on the radio. And, and uh, praise God for the songs we're singing here. I mean, all hail the king of heaven. That, that's a remarkable song. I, was, I think I sang Kumbaya when I was in... Uh, when I was that age. So I'm, I'm so grateful uh, for Laura and Ella and all those who were involved with our, our uh, joyful noise. And then Adam does an incredible job with our, our regen. And uh, I'm just very grateful, very grateful uh, for uh, the godly leadership in this church. Well, let's uh, pray and ask the Lord to continue to bless what he's already blessed. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you. We do have a great God who has revealed himself to us in the Son of God. And we know you, Lord, because of the finished work of Jesus. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, we worship tonight the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Lord, in fact, we see the triune God in display in this passage tonight. So Father, even as we look at this this text, may we behold the triune God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in June, the Humanist International General Assembly met in Glasgow, Scotland, as they celebrated the, the 70th anniversary of the first World Humanist Congress. In Glasgow, in June, they agreed to update what is known as the Amsterdam Declaration that had first been adopted in 1952, so 70 years earlier, at the first World Humanist Congress in the Netherlands. Now, why is that important, this Amsterdam Declaration? Well, it's the official creed of secular humanism. That is the official creed, the Amsterdam Declaration. Now, in his book, A Christian Manifesto, Francis Schaeffer gives us an idea of what this humanism is, this secular humanism. He says, we must understand what we're talking about when we use the word humanism. Humanism means that the man is the measure of all things. And as the Council for Secular Humanism says... Because, and this is rooted in atheism to the core, because no transcendent power, now what are they, what are they referring to, transcendent power? A God who is distinct from us, who stands over us. They're denying him. And they say because no transcendent power will save us, secular humanists maintain that humans must take responsibility for themselves. Well, this isn't new. There's nothing new under the sun. As far back as Genesis 11, we see the first widespread display of this atheistic mentality. 
But we, what we'll also see in this text is a pattern of our own natural inclination. So this isn't just about something that happened many centuries ago. Uh, we're looking in the mirror as we, as we, as we look into this, this passage. But this is the first attempt that man makes. I guess you could go back to Genesis 4. But the, the first attempt that humankind makes to build a secular humanist society. So here at Babel, we have civilization built on the foundation of human technology alone, bent on human glory alone. Does that sound familiar? It's a man-centered, atheistic life of self-worship and of human achievement devoid of God. Well, we know that that hits home uh, even today. This is not just an ancient story. It is the contemporary way of life and thinking and living. Well, notice in first four verses we see the idolatrous humanity's rebellion against God. The idolatrous, rebellion, uh, idolatrous humanity's rebellion against God. Verse one. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Literally, the entire earth had one lip. If you were to take that, translate this literally. Well, this can be a bit confusing because last week, if you'll notice back in chapter 10, verse 5, we read, from these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, and in their nations. Well, let me just say this. That's not a contradiction. Uh, it's one author. And Moses was not only writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was a pretty smart fellow. He, know, he knows what he wrote in chapter 10, verse 5. And yet here we read that there's it's essentially one language. So what gives? Well, chronologically, chapter 11 precedes chapter 10. But Moses is making a point that required the reversing of these chapters. He's making a couple of points, actually. Uh, so in chapter 10, notice in verse 25 of chapter 10, we looked at this last week, to Eber, of course, that's where the name, we get Hebrew. So Eber is the, the namesake of the Hebrew. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days, the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And so here there are two great lines coming from Shem, who is the father, right, that divides into two sons of Eber. One is going to find its destination in Babel. The other, that's Joktan, the other in Abram, that is Peleg. So that's one reason that the chapters are reversed. Secondly, by placing the Tower of Babel after the table of nations, what Moses is saying here is that God is very aware of, of human sin, of, of, of human autonomy, and his judgment is on their sin, but he is going to provide a solution. And that's why at the end of chapter 11, we'll look at this next week, we have the solution in early form acorn form, if you will. It is Abraham. 
Abraham is the solution to the problem uh, at the Tower of Babel. And that's why he reverses those chapters. He's making a theological point. He is providing a solution through a savior. So there's no contradiction between verse one and chapter 10. Well, notice in verse two, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Likely modern day Iraq. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, starting here in in verse 3, we're going to see this fallen humanity's pride and and selfish ambition expressed in, in three different ways. First of all, notice the use of these pronouns, us. The word us is found three times. Anytime a, a person speaks about themselves a great deal, you know there's pride, there's uh, uh, some narcissism there. Let us, and notice three times, and ourselves, that's used twice, and then we. Um, we see in verse four, lest we be dispersed. And so we see the pride and the selfish ambition just in the pronouns, but secondly, their, their desire to build this tower into the sky, giving them access to the heavens, where it was perceived where the deities dwell. Third, their attempt at significance without God. Boy, that's contemporary. Where do we see that? Let us make a name for ourselves. We see that in verse four. Notice with me. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So they had begun to discover whether they could articulate that, whether it was witting or not, that um, in a sin-wracked society, there is no real significance uh, apart when there is no God. (laughs) So they had to create significance for themselves. So they say to one another, let's make a name for ourselves. They have to import, they have to create their own significance. They've lost it in this sin-stained world. And and the ironic thing and the, the tragic thing about this is that they already had the significance in God that they were rejecting. Uh, we, we've seen that as early as Genesis 1. We were created, humanity was created as the image of God. And we were given a mandate to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with his glory as his vice regents. All things were placed underneath our feet. We had dominion. We were God's vice kings. That is greatly significant. And yet, because of sin... Um, Rather than worshiping and serving our creator, we now worship and serve the creation and the creature. Romans 1, verse 25. And, and that, uh, that, that creates a world that revolves not around God, but around man. This is secular humanism in its early form. And that is a colossal sin and foolish 
mistake and error because God has so arranged this world that you will never find your true significance until your life revolves around him. He's the one who created us and he's the one that knows how we are designed to work. Well, the only remedy to this disordered thinking is, is Jesus, right? Who Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. Do you recognize, Paul is saying there that the DNA of fallen humanity is selfishness and self-absorption. And so Christ is the only remedy to this, this pattern that we see here at the Tower of Babel so that we no longer live for ourselves but for the one who gave himself for us. Well, what we see here is just another version of Cain's city of man. It was constructed by man for man's glory. Essentially, it's the human attempt to rebuild Eden without redemption. Without redemption. Uh, that, that's really behind every motivation of the fallen human heart. We have this uh, nostalgia for what was lost in Adam. That's why all of us have this sense of, of something that's been lost. The, the Garden of Eden, we lost it. And, and so apart from God, we seek to regain Eden, but we do it by secular means. It's what we see here. But not only do we see a plan for a city that uh, will promote their name, don't lose sight of the fact this is a religious endeavor. They're no less religious just because they're godless. Uh, their plan here is for a new religion with man as the object of worship. Now, there's several reasons for believing this. First of all, as John Walton, uh, a great Old Testament scholar, brings out, um, one single architect architectural feature uh, that dominated the landscape of, of early ancient Near East was towers, like we see here, known as ziggurats. Ziggurats, started with a Z. Uh, and, and so these ziggurats were towers that were built that were dedicated to particular deities, false gods, obviously. In fact, the main feature of the ziggurat was this staircase, this stairway to heaven, if you will. And at the top of this ziggurat was a room uh, where, and, 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 a, and a table where God dwelled with his, his worshipers. And so it's very likely, this is, this is an act of worship, but it's worship on man's terms, not God's terms. Also, the Bible traces all false religions back to Babylon. All false religions can be traced back to Babylon in scripture. In fact, to say that, this, uh, that its top was in the heavens probably means it was dedicated to the heavens as a place of worship. In fact, did you know this? Astrology originated in Babylon. 
astrology originates in Babylon. So this is, this is nothing less than a satanic ploy. This is satanic false worship. Remember, you cannot separate any of Genesis from the conflict that we see in Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the, of the serpent is seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. And this brings us to the most important way the word come, this verb come, uh, is used in our passage. And what we're going to see in the, the second part of this passage, even though we may not be interested in God, and these people are not, and remember, apart from saving grace, this is you. This is us. We're looking in the mirror. And so naturally speaking, even though we may not be interested in God, God is interested in them. You can't get away with, uh, from that. You know, there are many people who, who imagine that if they'll just ignore God, if they'll just exclude God from their life, he'll go away or, or exclude him from some particular area of their life. He, he, you know, he'll, he'll just go away. He'll, he'll ignore it. But what we're going to see here, God takes much interest in even what the godless are doing. All right, so that brings us to the second part of this passage. We have seen uh, the idolatrous humanity's rebellion against God. In the second part of this passage, we see, and I'm using this terminology intentionally, not just because it's an alliteration, the immutable God's response against idolatrous humanity. Now, why do I use the word immutable? Because God is not like the unjust judge who just are the unscrupulous janitor at the end of the day who just sweeps everything underneath the rug. He always judges sin because he's immutable. He never changes. That brings us to verse five. And the Lord came down. So we've seen this verb, come, let us make bricks. Come, let's build ourselves a city. And the Lord came. He came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now I want you to keep in mind, God is not threatened. There's no panic, or Brother Al would often say, there's no panic in heaven, just plans, all right? So, so God is not threatened by humanity's potential here. But there is a trouble. Uh, there, there seems to be uh, this, this fact that God is troubled by what would happen to humanity if left unchecked. Now, there are important, several important parts of this story, but one of them is, the, again, the use of the word came. They came, he said, let us come and build this, this uh, city, let us build this tower, and here God comes. And this is the most important use of the word come. Now, notice in verse seven, come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, I want you to 
pick something up here. It's not hard to understand, but you don't pick it up in English. And I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I read the Hebrew scholars. So here in this verse, we've already seen the word confused, right? We see it here in verse 7. Let us confuse their language. The, the Hebrew word here, the verb here, you would spell it in English, N-B-L, okay? N-B-L, it is the reverse, the exact reverse of the word for brick that you see in verse 3. So they're, they're planning to build this tower with bricks, and it's the very reverse of that word. And so you would spell confuse, N-B-L, the word for brick is spelled L-B-N. And that's intentional. That's absolutely, that is not a coincidence. It, it drives home that any autonomous human pursuit. Now what do we mean by autonomous? A godless pursuit where you are not, you are not under the lordship of God himself. Any autonomous human pursuit that runs counter to the will of God is ultimately doomed. So they're building the bricks and he uses that word that's the opposite and he confuses their endeavors. This is a way of saying, and this is very hopeful for us, we don't, we don't know the direction God is, or where our country is taken. It doesn't look good at this moment. But this text is teaching us God always has the last word. God always has the last word. Um, like in Jonah, it reminds me of Jonah. Listen to what Jonah 1.3 says. You know the story of Jonah. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach. And Jonah knew that God is a God who's, who abounds in steadfast love and mercy. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that repentance would break out in Nineveh. He did not want it to happen. He hated the Ninevites and he was scared of the Ninevites. They were brutal. And so God tells Jonah to go. But listen to what it says. Jonah 1, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That's insane. You can't outrun God. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. He threw wind at Jonah. You can't outbox him. You can't outrun him. You cannot outrun anyone who can throw wind at you. Those who choose, and this text is teaching us, there's a lot of hope here as well, but those who choose to go their own way will always end up frustrated in the end. We need to believe that. That truth bats a thousand. That's a fact. We may not like it, but... It will always be this way because we live in God's world. And in this world, as James Montgomery Boyce asserts, God is determined to make bitter anything that is prized above himself. He is determined to make bitter anything that is prized above himself. And what they discovered is that the, the, the decisive hand in this passage is not man. It's the Lord's. The decisive word here 
is that the, the conclusion of all things always resides with God. But I also want you to recognize here that, that God's concern here and what he does here is, is also grace-filled. Let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Where is the grace in that? He is seeking to restrain their folly. He is restraining their sin. So he comes down to confuse their language lest their sin grows to full expression. That would be a full-on judgment. Understand, I want you to understand this. This is hard to, to think about when you, when you think about the emphasis the New Testament places on, on unity, or as we like to say here, harmony. But unity and harmony, divorced from God, is not a good thing. Unity and harmony, divorced from God, is not a good thing. Because it's the harmony of godlessness. And God says, they'd be better without that. They'd be better off without that. But I want you to the second notable thing about this uh, verse here is that, that God came down. God had to come down. Now, that's obviously attributing human-like qualities uh, to a God who is omnipresent. But, but there's, Moses is writing this tongue-in-cheek the idea here is that humanity, by their technology, is building this remarkable tower and city uh, with its tops to the heavens. But God, in order to see it, has to descend. I mean, that's humor. That's Moses' way at humor. Uh, our greatest efforts are puny in the sight of God. Otto Proch writes, Yahweh must draw near, not because he's nearsighted, but because he dwells at such tremendous height and their work is so tiny. But I also want you to know, let us go down. Who is us? Well, the Trinity wasn't created at Christmas, all right? Uh, we've already seen in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. That can't be the angels. The angels aren't image bearers. They're not the image of God, and they're not involved in creation. So we see even as early as Genesis 1, and here we see in Genesis 11 that there is a plurality in the Godhead. Let us go down. And so who's involved in this judgment and act of grace? God the Father? God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The triune God is eternal. He is eternal being. All three persons of the Godhead are, are involved in this act. But I want you to notice in verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Now, I think there's something quite sobering here. Moses indicates that God delayed his judgment for a time. Now, why is that important for us? He lets them make pro a progress in their project. And then and only then does he come down and immediately frustrate their plans. We can prosper and succeed 
for a time without God. Or at least appear to succeed and prosper for a time in the wrong pursuits. God will always, though, have the last word. Always. It may be you are experiencing his long-suffering. Don't confuse his long-suffering with indifference. The hammer will fall on godless pursuits 100% of the time. Well, these people prospered for a time, and the hammer fell. And notice in verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel. The word Babel, you may see in the footnote there, sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Of course, Babel was mentioned in chapter 10, verse 10. And Nimrod appears to be the founder of the city of Babel. But this word Babel is the Hebrew name translated elsewhere as Babylon. So this is the origin of Babylon. Of course, um, Babylon throughout the Bible represents a godless society, a godless nation, godless materialism. Um, All the times, and you can see Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, if you read in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar uh, perhaps is the most powerful man who ever walked the earth. Um, But the balloon payment came due with Nebuchadnezzar as well, didn't it? And I believe, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar was converted to Christ. Um, That's another sermon for another day, but uh, the reality is Babylon represents godless society all the way through to Revelation 18. This judgment is going to set the context, though, for the upcoming narrative that we're going to begin to pick up next week. The narrative of Abraham who God will use to reverse the curse on these nations, to bless the nations, the nations that we read about in Genesis 10 and the peoples we read about here who are now dispersed over the earth. In fact, listen uh, to the prophet Zephaniah where he's speaking about the day when Messiah would come. When the king would come, who's Messiah? He's the offspring of Abraham. He's the seed of Abraham who will be the means by which the nations are blessed. Zephaniah 3.9, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Of course, we know This happened at Pentecost, right? Pentecost is depicted by Dr. Luke as the reversal of Babel. When, as uh, Acts 2.6 tells us, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Glorious. Now think, think about the correspondence here as we close. At Babel, humankind was confused in their language. But at Pentecost, 
the language is restored. At Babel, man ascends. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, verses 8 to 12, Dr. Luke includes in the account of Pentecost a table of nations. And right here, just before we read about the, the Tower of Babel, we have a table of nations. At Babel, God came to judge and scatter the nations into many tribes and tongues. At Pentecost, God comes to bless and scatter a new tribe known as the church, what we read about in Ephesians 2 tonight, who will take the gospel to many nations. In other words, Babel is not the last word. God always has the last word. Pentecost, rooted in the finished work of the seed of Abraham, reverses Babel. This is where history is headed. In fact, the inaugural steps have already taken place. Therefore, all Babel-like pursuits are doomed. That's a word for us all. That's a word for believers here. We, we're still prone to Babel-like pursuits. Pursuits that where we sequester off from God. It's also a word to every unbeliever here who thinks you can prosper apart from God. You may for a time, but the balloon payment will come due. And whereas they said in Babel, come let us build. The seed of Abraham says, I will build. I will build my church. Indeed, the tower of Babel is built on the foundation of self-assertion and self-glorification. But the church, the new humanity, one new man that we read about tonight is built on the self-sacrifice of the one who was content to be without any reputation. The tower ended in failure. But the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, not even the gates of Hades can prevail against it. So here's the question as we close. What city do you belong to? What city do you belong to? It's really the tale of two cities here, isn't it? Where is your citizenship? If someone were to examine your life, they, they, they examine where you spend your time, where you spend your resources, what would they conclude? Where is your citizenship? Does your life revolve around yourself? That's the city of man. Or do you have a citizenship in the city of God whose builder and maker is God? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. And we pray, Lord, that it has done its work in the heart of every person here. Every person's at a different place here tonight. Most people here tonight are believers. Their citizenship is in heaven. And yet we recognize that with the flesh, we are still prone to wander into that city of Babel that is ultimately doomed. Lord, there's also, this is a word to those who have not yet trusted in the one who would come from the family of Abraham to reverse the curse on Babel. May tonight be the night they trust in him.
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Adam and the musicians come forward, we want to give you an opportunity to respond. It's not your typical gospel text, but the reality is that text precedes the seed forms of that gospel that's going to find its fulfillment in Jesus. The seed of Abraham is the only hope. The seed of Abraham is your only hope. You are prone to live life apart from God. You you are prone to think you can actually succeed apart from God. And you may be for a time, but the hammer's going to fall. And you need to trust in the one that he provides to reverse that idolatrous pursuit. We want to give you an opportunity to do that as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.